You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate megastores led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. Today's episode is brought to you by our supporters on Patreon, including our Commodore class. That's Commodore's Mananon, MD, Jawbreaker, Kruger, Workman, Kenway, Toves, Loining, Two-Gun Tony, Drunken Deck, Redbeard, Legends, Eric the Red, the Pirate Nopales, Hefe, Matthew the Navigator, Bull, Vertigon, Jennings, Rumgut, and Bootstraps Bailey. And of course our quartermasters, Hunter, Samuel, Adam, and Birdsong. Hello. Welcome to the Pirate History Podcast. We left off last time with the end of the First Anglo-Dutch War and New England's response to the scourge of piracy in her waters. This is a pattern we've seen time and time again. Empower an army of privateers, accomplish your war aims, and then tell everyone to go home. Here you go, here's adventure. Freedom, money, booze, women, men, here's a taste of independence. Here's everything that the world has to offer on a platter. But now, go home. Go back to fishing or farming or working for a wage. This was a problem in every nation. Less for Spain, although it did happen, but it was particularly notable for the English. However, it wasn't an unexpected phenomenon. Let's look way back to the 14th century and the Hundred Years' War. Get that picture in your head, you know, it's the high Middle Ages. There are noble knights in gleaming plate mail, and their young squires bearing their heraldry, and of course, lady loves holding tight to their favors. There's courtly love in Arthurian legend. That's the myth. Of course, the reality was in stark contrast. I mean, that was when the Black Death exploded. But even on a societal level, it was not that magical. Early on in the Hundred Years' War, the English won a staggering victory. Their yeoman longbowmen just mowed down the ranks of noble French chevaliers. It was a really embarrassing victory for the French. I mean, their king was captured on the battlefield. But once that battle was over, everyone agreed to a ceasefire. Modern military strategists will actually point to this decision by the English not to harry the enemy as a reason that the war and the suffering went on for so long. However, while they were discussing the formal treaty, there were still hundreds of English knights left on French soil. I mean, it was 
kind of English soil at that point, but it was in France. The yeomen, though, the archers, the foot soldiers, they went home, and the noblemen went home. But the lower gentry, those equestrian knights who didn't have any substantial land holdings but a decent amount of money and a horse and armor, well, they stayed in France. They formed what were called the companies, mercenary companies, and they had this idea that they would be kind of like Robin Hoods. They would ride around and right wrongs and sing love songs and engage in feats of daring do, and of course, romance fair maidens. But the reality of the companies really puts the pirates to shame. Villages were burned to the ground. Towns were captured and defiled. One company specialized in seizing and then ransoming castles back to their French lords. And that company did so well, they all retired. The number of men killed is shocking, and the number of women that were raped beggars belief. Those stories are truly horrifying. The French at the bargaining table with the English were furious, and they demanded that these companies be stopped before any deal could be reached. The English king, ever gracious, agreed to their demands. He declared to those English companies, Hey guys, cut it out. I mean, come on, stop it. And then, when the roving bands just ignored him, as the king intended, he turned around to the Frenchman at the bargaining table and said, Well, there's no stopping them. You'd better come to an agreement. And then when the French came up with an offer, the English king rejected it out of hand. He demanded double. And the French capitulated. They gave him double. They gave England huge parts of France. Now, partly that's because their king was in English custody, but there were more pressing matters. Those companies of roving Englishmen were causing such devastation on a daily basis that the people were on the verge of revolt. I mean, imagine that your daughter is in the wolves' jaws, and the only people with the power to save her are currently quibbling over some taxation rights. What would you do to make them save her? The French nobility, due to the uprising of these peasants for a moment there, feared for their very existence. So this pattern, by the time of the pirates, was old. I really just can't believe that the English were unprepared for it by the 17th century, 300 years later. But I can believe that they weren't prepared for what happened after. The difference between the companies and the pirates is that once the war was over and their unofficial purpose had been fulfilled, the companies went home. Or, you know, some of them went off to Germany or Italy to serve the Pope or the Holy Roman Emperor, but they stopped massacring and raping all across the French countryside. The pirates? Well, a lot of privateers and pirates accepted the blanket pardons that were handed out after the war was concluded. They took their winnings and they went home and they invested them. They bought land or opened a business. But the pirates didn't. The men in those companies were lower gentry. They had a certain amount of chivalric nobility. But the pirates were less respectable. They were less industrious than the proper privateers. They didn't go home and invest their winnings. They had already spent them on women and rum and guns. So what happens when their captain announces, Well, boys, we won the war. Time to go home. 
The pirates, the real honest-to-God pirates, well, they killed their captains and their officers. Maybe they threw them overboard, or if they were really, really nice, maybe they dropped them off in the nearest port. So, after the First Anglo-Dutch War, the government of England and the councils in Massachusetts and even in Rhode Island had to announce a plan to arrest and execute anyone found guilty of piracy. Which mostly worked. For a while. But there were more wars coming, and the pirate menace that was set loose in those conflicts would not be so easily stopped. This is episode 161, Step Lightly. So let's pull back and do a sweep of European politics in 1660. That was the year that Charles II and the Stuart dynasty were restored to the throne of England. Charles initially was walking into a very pleasant diplomatic situation, but there were a ton of pitfalls he didn't see coming. Immediately following the end of the First Anglo-Dutch War, the English Commonwealth got involved with another war with Spain. But when Charles was restored, there was a moment where it looked like everything would work out perfectly. Charles was on very good terms with the King of France, Louis XIV, thanks to the marriage alliances and, you know, Louis having grown up with Charles at his court. And the fact that, well the conjecture that the Stuarts were secretly Catholic. Even just the rumor of that, as well as replacing those Puritan radicals, soothed over a lot of the Anglo-Spanish relations. Once the Stuarts were back on the throne, Philip III, the King of Spain, agreed to end the war. Which brings us around to the Netherlands. William III was the Prince of Orange in the Netherlands. Conveniently, he was William III, Prince of Orange, and would go on to become William III, King of England. This never happens in history. You know, James I of England is really supposed to be James I of England and James VI of Scotland, and someone like Charles V or really any of the Holy Roman Emperors have so many titles and so many numbers it's impossible to keep track of, so just let me relish this moment with William III. Currently, though, he was not the stodholder of the Netherlands, as his father and his grandfather had been. He was still stodholder in the provinces in which his family held power, but he had no influence officially or politically over the other provinces. About a decade earlier, in the early 1650s, the Netherlands had just done away with that stodholder of the Netherlands position. Instead, the highest-ranking families from all of the United Provinces convened a state's general, and that served as an executive body for the Dutch Empire. That shift toward a more republican form of governance secured most of the power in the Netherlands in the hands of the Hollanders, mainly in people from Amsterdam. That shift and that power was in the hands of mostly two men, the first was Johann de Witt. We've mentioned him before. He was a powerful advocate for a republican movement away from the Orangists. And he had a lot of liberal ideals. Many, in fact, would be picked up by the American founding fathers. But he was no George Washington. Sure, he proposed a democracy, but only a democracy in which he stood at the very top. 
The other prominent Dutch Republican, we might call him DeWitt's number two, was named Cornelius de Graeff. He was largely responsible for the positive relations between the Dutch and English following the Restoration. He organized what's called the Gift, a large donation of Italian Renaissance artwork from the Dutch to the English. He also played a central role in organizing the marriage between Charles's niece and William III. The de Graeff family, beyond Cornelius, was a powerful and influential family in Dutch politics, going back generations. So, was Cornelius de Graeff in any way related to Lauro de Graaf? Their names are spelled differently, but in English writings of the time, that doesn't mean much. The answer is no. There's no evidence there. I will say, though, that Lauro de Graaf was probably of mixed race, and therefore would not have been in line to inherit any lands or titles. However, he married well for a pirate, twice, and he was a suspiciously well-off landowner for a mere pirate. Now, if this were a colonial history, 1660 is where we would shift our focus from New England back to Chesapeake Bay. See, Virginia and Maryland were staunch defenders of royal power during and even after the Civil Wars. Cromwell was never able to root the royalists out of Chesapeake Bay. They were too well off and paid too many taxes, but he did significantly favor New England and Jamaica. But now that Charles II was in power, all the favor shifted back to the royalist stronghold in Virginia and Maryland. Much like Virginia, Massachusetts was too wealthy. They paid too many taxes. The king was not going to upset that apple cart. But they were put on the back burner. And it's around that time that we see this little uptick in piratical actions out of Massachusetts. Nothing too severe. Not the sort of thing that would invite a visit from the Navy. But the targets that the pirates chose were usually royalist vessels. And somehow the pirates were just too darned elusive for these Massachusetts men to catch. This is where New England and... I would even argue America, really began to lean into this tactic. Not open revolt, not rebellion, just the occasional reminder that out here in the wilds of America, His Majesty's ships could so easily come to harm, or just up and disappear. Maybe, considering that fact, the crown should step lightly. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. Napoleon Bonaparte rose from obscurity to become the most powerful and significant figure in modern history. Over 200 years after his death, people are still debating his legacy. He was a man of contradictions, a tyrant and a reformer, 
a liberator and an oppressor, a revolutionary and a reactionary. His biography reads like a novel, and his influence is almost beyond measure. I'm Everett Rummage, host of the Age of Napoleon podcast, and every month I delve into the turbulent life and times of one of the greatest characters in history, and explore the world that shaped him in all its glory and tragedy. It's a story of great battles and campaigns, political intrigue, and massive social and economic change. But it's also a story about people, populated with remarkable characters. I hope you'll join me as I examine this fascinating era of history. Find The Age of Napoleon wherever you get your podcasts. However, most of that New England piracy is poorly documented. The English were much more focused on the dastardly exploits of the scurrilous Dutch pirates. And we shouldn't brush that aside. The Dutch were very good at the business of capturing ships on the high seas. Just look at Lauro de Graaf. But this plague of Dutch piracy smells off to me. These pirates seem to have been doing the bidding of the West India Company and the States General of the Netherlands. You know, the opposite of piracy. See, all that goodwill that King Charles II received upon his restoration fell apart amazingly quickly. All of those rulers and prominent names that we mentioned earlier began to squabble, and they began to point fingers, and King Charles was in the middle of all of it. Even the marriage between Orange and Stuart, a marriage that was supposed to secure an alliance, well, even that caused tensions. There's an argument to be made that while they were at the brink of war, those tensions pushed them over. The Second Anglo-Dutch War was a big event in New England. The conflicts, the border disputes between New Hampshire and Connecticut and New Netherland, well, they reached a fevered pitch. It was, in fact, the English capture of New Amsterdam that forced Pieter Stuyvesant to capitulate. He handed New Amsterdam over to English forces, and it was that capitulation, and the prize that the English would christen New York, that convinced England to sit down at the bargaining table. The Dutch won the war, but the English gained New York. The Second Anglo-Dutch War is also hugely consequential to our overarching narrative. A ton of pirates were made in privateer engagements between 1665 and 1667. However, those were almost exclusively West Indian pirates, so we're going to blow right by all of it. If you look out your porthole, you'll see the war ending and a wave of buccaneers arriving in the West Indies. There's Tortuga and Francois Lolonet and Pierre Le Picard, Roque Brasiliano, Henry Morgan, Port Royal, the whole Brethren of the Coast saga, raiding up and down the Spanish main attacking Campeche and Maracaibo and, in 1671, the city of Panama. Now, by that point, in 1671, the European cast of characters hadn't changed very much. Charles II was still King of England. Louis XIV, still King of France. Spain had a new king, but he was not mentally or physically capable of doing the job, so his mother and his advisors continued to actually do the business of ruling. And in the Netherlands, Johann de Witt and the Republican faction was still in power but that wasn't going to last very long. The problem with the Republicans, De Witt and De Graaf especially, was their 
laser focus on commercial pursuits that had made the Netherlands very wealthy, but they focused on that to the detriment of everything else, including Dutch military power. The year after Henry Morgan sacked Panama, everyone invaded the Netherlands. The Dutch call 1672 the Rompjaar, or the Disaster Year. They got just pummeled by a joint Anglo-French invasion. They had maybe the most powerful navy in the world, even including the Spanish and the English. However, armies still won wars, and the Dutch had virtually no land power. However, that was not an accident. That was actually a calculated move on the part of De Witt. Like seemingly every major European war in history, the pre-war calculations all seemed to hinge around the English question. You know, what are the English going to do? Are they going to side with France or fight against her? Or maybe they'll just sit this whole thing out? Well, Johann de Witt genuinely believed that the English would not stand for yet another war against their Protestant brethren. And his reading of the anti-Catholic sentiment in England was spot on. He really had the pulse of the English people, but he didn't factor in Charles II. His predictions would come true, of course, but only six years later, six years after the outbreak of the war and six years after his own death. This was the war that threw all the old alliances into disarray. Not only did England switch sides to fight alongside the Spanish, the Dutch were fighting alongside their former imperial overlords. Remember, the conflict that erupted here in 1672 wasn't just another Anglo-Dutch war. It was the Franco-Dutch war. It was the first opportunity for everyone in Europe to let off some of the steam that had been building since Westphalia. Now, we've covered this war in more depth than any of the other wars on this show, as well as the pirates that were involved, but we should pause here. This was the war in which all the latter-day buccaneers earned their stripes. John Coxon, Bartholomew Sharp, John Cook, Peter Harris, Edward Davis, the other Peter Harris, Mikhail Andrzejewski, Lauro de Graff, Nicholas von Horn, William Dampier, Basil Ringrose, everyone that was involved in either the first or second Pacific adventure and the drama surrounding Saint-Domingue. The only pirates who didn't begin their careers in the Third Anglo-Dutch War were the old sea dogs that tagged along like Charles Swan, or some of the younger sort who got their start after the war, pirates like George Dew. This post-Third Anglo-Dutch War era is really the bridge between the Brethren of the Coast and the Pirates of the Round. It's also when the North American colonies really come into their own as pirate bases and pirate havens, and pirate hunters. And they did so, perhaps surprisingly, with royal writ. Let's turn back for a moment to Chesapeake Bay. The colonies of Virginia and Maryland were in bad shape. Virginia especially had been ravaged by Dutch raids in the first two Anglo-Dutch wars, and then they were hit by a successive wave of hurricanes and floods, and finally a winter that killed off more than half of their livestock. All of that was bad enough, but to really top it all off, Massachusetts Bay was dominating trade in North America. Now, Virginia was still profitable, and the wealthy landowners were making a lot of money 
due mostly to the trade in tobacco. But that trade was shipped back to England in large convoys, twice yearly, kind of like the Spanish plate fleet. And thanks to the Navigation Act and, you know, the realities of wind and tide, there were very few ships that came to call it Jamestown. Now that Massachusetts Bay was such a center of trade, that's where everyone was going. So getting supplies shipped into Virginia was becoming harder and harder. And when the war broke out in 1672, the Lords of Trade and Plantations ordered the governor of Virginia to prepare for war. But Virginia was not prepared. The letter that their governor wrote back is a tale of woe and of a colony on the brink of collapse. Their forts were in total disrepair. The brickmakers there in Virginia could not make brick out of the Virginia soil. Their food stores were low, and beyond that, storing food in Virginia, in the hot, humid American South before the advent of refrigeration, was virtually impossible. The guns that Virginia had were old. They had no ammunition. Perhaps most distressing, though, was the ratio of freemen to the slaves and indentured servants. The freemen were a tiny minority there in Virginia, and they certainly weren't going to put guns in the hands of their labor force. They would rise up and kill them all. And if the governor ordered all of the freemen to assemble in Jamestown to form a militia, they would have to turn their backs on the slaves and indentured servants, who would inevitably rise up and kill them all. The governor ended the letter by saying that the legislature, against his wishes, had just drafted up plans to abandon the plantations and flee into the mountains. And their ships? What ships? All of the good shipyards and the shipwrights were up in New England. The governor begged them for supplies and men and guns and ammunition. Now, this was the sort of thing that colonial governors did all the time. Oh, it's so terrible here. You've got to send us more food, more money, more guns, more men. And usually they were exaggerating. Sometimes they were outright defrauding the home country. So the lords of trade and plantations replied, no. However, there were at this point two ships en route to escort the tobacco crop across the Atlantic. When they arrived, they saw that the governor was not exaggerating. He wasn't lying. The state of Virginia's defenses were just as bad as he had claimed. They documented everything they saw, but then they prepared to depart. However, as they did so, a Dutch fleet arrived at Jamestown. This was almost a perennial affair. The English kept getting involved in fights with the Dutch, and the Dutch kept sending ships to Jamestown, and they always won. Now, those two English men-of-war put up a good fight. The Dutch fleet certainly weren't expecting them. It was a pretty intense day-long sea battle. But even with those two men-of-war, the numbers just weren't in England's favor. The report that the governor and the captains of those two men-of-war wrote called the Dutch pirates. But they weren't. Some of them were privateers, but just enough to flesh out the fleet that was owned by the West India Company. And we can be pretty sure of their intentions here. After the battle was over, after the Dutch had captured hundreds of tons of tobacco, another English ship arrived on the scene. She was a small English ketch that was filled with hogsheads of tobacco. The Dutch seized his ship and questioned the captain. But the captain swore 
to God that none of this tobacco was intended for or owned by the English crown. He was going to tag along with the fleet across the Atlantic, obviously, but all of this, his ship, his crop, everything was privately owned, and he was going to sell it to private merchants back in England. And the Dutch fleet let him go. They weren't after a private citizen's property. They weren't at war with the merchants. They were at war with the crown, and they only wanted crown property. To me, that says more than anything else, these men were not pirates. The Dutch, as we will see, were not employing pirates. This raid was a huge embarrassment for England. The governor was recalled to England to defend his actions. However, upon arrival, he died. There was some suggestion it may have been suicide, but he was old and already in poor health, a heavy smoker, and it's more likely that the stress added to those complications killed him. But the captains that had fought that battle outside Jamestown confirmed what the governor had said in his letter. They were not prepared to defend themselves. They were falling apart. England, though, didn't have the resources to help them out. They just started a war with their next-door neighbors. They didn't have the men or the guns or the ships or the food. Instead, they did something that Charles II rarely did. They granted the lieutenant governor, now acting governor of Virginia, the power to grant letters of mark. As this was a rare event, many of the New England men who were old hands at fighting on the sea sailed down to Virginia to collect their letters of mark. It was an economic opportunity they could not turn down. And for the Chesapeake, this was great news. They had a private mercenary navy sailing out of the Chesapeake, clearing their waters of any enemy ships. However, that left New England in a tricky situation. All of their best sailors, their own private mercenary navy, had just sailed down south, and their own waters were now open season for any Dutchman that wanted to come in, maybe to reclaim New Netherland. When they asked for permission to dispense letters of mark, they were told no because Charles II didn't care what happened to New England, so they wrote another letter, a letter that informed the lords of trade and plantations that they were going to issue letters of mark. It was necessary to their survival and the profits and the taxes that went back to England, and beyond that, what was England going to do about it? They'd just started a war, remember? They didn't have the ships to send across the sea, and if they did... The New English would have their own private navy. It was here that the names that we are going to know began to pop up in New England history. Some of them, due to the Dutch policy toward pirates, were themselves Dutchmen. Now, La Graaf and Nicholas von Horn, Mikhail Andrezun, they were all Dutch, but they were all sailing for France, down south. However, one buccaneer that they would sail alongside someone that they would come to know quite well and that we've met before, was at this point living in New England. Jan Willems, alias Yankee Williams, was a native-born Dutchman. He might have lived in New Netherland for a time, or he may have come to America here for this privateering opportunity. Either way, the first record that we have of Jan Willems 
comes from his association with another buccaneer that we know, an Englishman sailing out of Jamestown, Rhode Island. Thomas Paine, though born in England, was already living in America when the war broke out. He and Jan Willems and their whole little cohort started their privateering career right here. And now that we're here with this plucky band of pirates at the outbreak of the Third Anglo-Dutch War, right as the explosion of piracy in New England is about to erupt onto the world, well, that's where we're going to leave it for today. You might have noticed that our coverage of North American piracy shifted gears the last couple of weeks. We started out really zoomed in, looking at stories of their fledgling colonies and the pirates there in close detail. And then we switched to kind of a macro view. I had this outline for our coverage of North American piracy. And while there are a lot of stories there, as I said last time, they're just not that exciting. I need blood in my stories, and not, you know, sad blood like the Indian massacres. I need some fun blood. I need thunder on the high seas, and there just isn't much of that, at least not in the record. Until, that is, the period that we're going to talk about next time. The Buccaneers in North America in the 1670s and the 1680s. I'd like to thank everyone for listening. I'd like to thank everyone who has helped to support the show. All of our patrons on Patreon, those of you who have donated through the website, everyone who has left us ratings or reviews, and those of you who have recommended this show online or to your friends and family in real life. All of you make this show possible. Thank you. Our theme music was, as always, The Old Captain by the fantastic band Brillig. If you haven't checked them out yet, you can find them at brillig.com.au. That's B-R-I-L-L-I-G.com.au. After you're done over there, why not check out our website at piratehistorypodcast.com. As always, these days, most importantly, thank you, stay safe, and be well.